Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. With guest co-host. You with Relic? Yes, we are live. The internet can totally see you now. Quote unquote. Thanks, YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> don't look internet. Don't look directly into the podcast. <laughs> Just don't look. How about that? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Just close your eyes and let our voices send you on a journey. Oh, oh, uh, uh, oh. No, no, Dan, no. Oh, you're right. We didn't turn the lights off first. Wait, what? Raised eyebrow. Makes no sound, so I appreciate you uh, annotating that. Welcome to the 310th episode of Polycast. I'm Dan Q, and I'm joined by fellow regular co-hosts, Makalua. If I raise my eyebrows too much further, they're going to be in outer space, so yeah. (sighs) The me and team. Maximizing the quality and quantity of strategies in the room. Mega Bears fan. I promise I'll wake by the end of this episode. And returning guest co-host, New Earth Relic. Season 12, episode 12. This is going to be one gross show. Mega Bears fan, Jason. Yeah, this mega confusing. <laughs> mega Bears fan, Jason. Jason, Mega Bears fan. Mega Jason. And this is why we use nicknames on the internet. And on that note, uh, speaking of quantity of things in a room, we have a thread about front-loading. Specifically from a clue without, is there too much available to you in the game, really, in terms of making choices, is the way I interpreted this thread. I would say no, in that I would prefer there to be more meaningful choices near the end of the game or to end the game sooner than to reduce the number of meaningful choices available in the early game. There are a lot of things to consider, but I don't feel that it's overwhelming. And uh, most of the great gameplay has been in historical games as well. And by historical, I mean previous entries in the series. So, yeah, I mean, most people play the early game and stop playing after that, right? So we do want to make the end game more like the early game. We don't want to make the early game more like the end game. So there are not too many choices in the early game, in my opinion. Yeah, to that end, in the thread, Archon Wing had said, the reason why late game sucks is because early game is actually well-designed. It's actually the part that's doing its job then. <laughs> yeah. And as Play Shogi said, you can't get them all with regards to choices in the early game. And as long as the choices are meaningful, as you already mentioned, Phil, then that's exactly what we want. So people are picking up on the pacing of the game is different as you progress. And the thread gets into, these are the number of technologies, these are the number of civics per era, these are the number of choices per era, down to two decimal places in some of these mathematical calculations. And I get what we're trying to go for here, but when I start looking at numbers of technologies, I just start thinking about how the game determines who is ahead in science by counting and prioritizing the number of technologies you've researched as opposed to your beakers per turn, which is misleading, and in this case it's misleading. It's not always about the number of choices... What you want to have there to be a sufficient number of choices that you can't do them all. You don't want to be able to have it so that you're always doing the same one or the same ones in comparable order, that you're more often than not always going for these things first or these things last, regardless of what else is going on in the game. And we need to make it so that in the later game, there are choices to be made and the choices matter. 
because, as Arkham Wing also says, the reason the later game feels boring is that it takes too long to develop cities relative to the time left, and that's really a lot of what you would be doing in terms of making choices in the later game, other than finishing up whatever victory conditions you're trying to go for. Oh, I'm building slash buying a military to go for a domination victory. Oh, I need more space ports in order to go for the science victory. If there were those comparable choices in the early game, the explore, the expand, the exploit, then that would make also help the game not feel like, so how many more end turns do we have to go through until we get to a resolution? Because this is boring. When you say it that way, in terms of city development, it sounds like he means like in-game turns, which is actually a, a true, and that's been an issue in Civ pretty much forever. There's always a cutoff point in a game, depending on the mechanics, where settling or capturing an additional city is not going to speed up your victory condition unless by capturing a city you're pushing towards domination or conquest. So like you found a city, you need to grow it, you need to get the infrastructure set up, it costs you maintenance, it costs you amenities, whatever it is, depending on the version of the Civ game. At some point, it's not actually going to speed up your victory condition. It will slow it down. But that's always an issue. Well, I guess you could also make an argument for capturing cities in order to take spaceports for the science victory. Yeah, that's true. Although, again... Those are expensive to build, so someone <laughs> else build them for you. <laughs> again, though, it's very situational whether that's actually going to speed up your space win. And certainly, at least in the current state of single player, it's very unlikely... <laughs> And yeah, well, and if you will be pushing to... for a space win, and the AI is actually going to have that kind of stuff ahead of you to the point where building a military and going and taking it is going to speed up your space win. You might do it to prevent a loss if you're behind, yeah, in which case, I... yeah, that speeds up your win because you're not losing. Instead, you're winning. But I have seen quite a few games where the AIs have started getting spaceports out pretty early, and then I check the victory screen, and it doesn't look like they're actually building any of the dang parts. Yeah, so, okay, that's true. I, they don't I've, usually I've win that. before, like, turn 300, so, on deity. <sighs> yeah, so sometimes it's like, okay, well, I could spend 30 turns or whatever building a spaceport, or I could just invade this guy and take three of his. Although, at that point, are the number of turns you're ending actually going to be faster to complete your science win, or are you just going to go take the rest of the capitals? Yeah, if you're powerful enough to be taking those cities anyway, you're probably powerful enough to yeah. just finish it. Especially because your enemies with Space Force will have endgame attacks. If you're beating that, you're probably beating everything else, too. Right. The biggest concern is either amount of time that you have to spend in real lifetime going to get there, because the other opposing armies could have a lot of units that you have to kill your way through, or just click end turn, end turn, end turn is a lot faster than kill these guys, end turn, kill these guys, end turn. That's true, but you're having to take a spaceport anyway, and the number of turns you're cycling for a space one is likely fewer in the turn count sense. So your lost time for domination versus space is actually not that easy to compute. It depends on the player speed. It depends on the quality of their computer. <laughs> How big <laughs> the map, on map is. Size. Yeah. yeah, certainly domination by eliminating like seven opponents is going to be significantly faster than domination eliminating 24 opponents, whereas the space... It's still slower because of the turn rollover times, but it's going to be slower by less. And again, that's machine dependent. Yeah, the number of spaceports you need, the number of spaceship parts you need to build does not scale based on game length or size. Yeah. I mean, the buzzing in the chat says, I don't understand how it takes too long to develop cities in the late game, question mark. That's all comes back to the district construction, the district scaling issues that we currently have in the game. Yeah, I might go ahead and found a later city because mm, I need this particular strategic resource, but that's all I'm doing. It is just a glorified colony for that resource. 
I need something to build. Okay, go ahead and construct a commercial hub. I don't need a campus anymore, but gold is fantastic. Now, now, there's always chop overflow too, Dan. If you're getting like hundreds of a percent modifier on chops and there's a lot of forests on this one city site. Oh, yes. There's definitely <laughs> situations where you can go ahead and do that. And that would, in fact, make the case stronger for actually settling something there, whether there's a strategic resource there or not. It does suck, and we talked about this in the last few episodes, about all the empty space that we seem to have in Civilization VI. And I'm not suggesting that we go back to, oh, there's a space here. I can go and build a city here, even though it's crap. <laughs> it's not as bad in Civ Six for that, which is good. I don't want to return to that. But now the pendulum is one that we've got all of this empty space, and... To try to address this in part, a clue without who started the thread, wants to know if maybe talking about pushing districts back to later eras or pushing back some of the buildings that you can construct into later eras, except that with the buildings, you have to, for instance, in a campus, in order to construct a university, you have to have a library. Or you get lucky and you get that great scientist that give you both at the same time. So to me, that's already delayed. And plus, you have to get to the technology in order to be able to construct that, too. So I don't think that's going to address the issue that's here. I think the front-loading issue is mostly a learning curve for newer players, where there are so many options to try to figure out, how do I decide what it is that I do? But anybody who thinks they're going to start playing Civilization and have five to ten minutes and be ready to go, it's an investment in the time, and there's different difficulty levels, and there's lots of single-player games you can start and stop again. Even veteran Civ players do that now <laughs> now and again. I think what we're getting at, and as you kind of set up front there, Phil, it's not that it's front-loading too much, it's that the later game doesn't do enough of that. It doesn't replicate that in a meaningful way, regardless of how many choices there currently are. It's not that the choices aren't necessarily meaningful, it's just more meaningful to, in fact, not do that. Because, gee, even if you're not going for a formal victory condition, whatever it is that you're trying to do, you're probably going to accomplish it more quickly by dealing with the cities that you already constructed, because they've had the time to mature, and you can just go ahead and do that. One thing for the uh, late game borders, though, that could be relatively simply implemented and probably wouldn't affect gameplay much is if you increase the natural city culture expansion rate a lot with like some end game tech or like mid to late game tech. That way, the cities you've already founded are very likely to fill out things outside their third ring before the end of the game. So you have those pretty map borders going on. The thing I actually most want if we're going to be talking about the borders is changing how cities interact with tiles. Oh, uh, so early on, if you start out, cities can only work the first two rings. Then at some point, mid-game, you go to three rings, then four rings towards the end game. Because right now, the problem that I'm having with this is that early on, it feels like everything is taken up by like districts or useful tiles. And then later on, it feels like everything is just completely full. And I have all this empty space I just can't build any cities on. So I just have this giant mega city blob and then empty space, and then another giant mega city blob. And it ends up making the space feel like it's kind of underused at the same time, that it's just full. I'm not sure if it's intentional or not, but empty space is designed into Civ 6 compared to earlier iterations in the series. Well, and Civ 5 is the same way. But like if you look at Civ 4 versus Civ 6, or Civ 5, uh, Civ 4 versus the later Civs than that, there is a major cutoff there in terms of whether tiles are intentionally workable. Because in Civ 5, you're gated on number of cities because of the happiness mechanic to some degree. And in Civ 6, it's amenities, right? You only get so many amenities. 
And so no matter what, you can't put bunches of cities next to each other, like the three tile distance, grow all of them to like pop 15, 20. Just it doesn't make sense compared to working better tiles. Whereas in Civ 4, this was legitimately useful. And because happiness was only a per city limitation, it was actually feasible to go near ICS and work nearly all of your tiles and benefit from by design. Whereas in Civ 5 and 6, that's just not true. It's not useful to do this. And that's okay in principle. Yeah, I actually think ICS works a little bit better in 6 and 5, simply because of the fact that a lot of the uh, mid-tier buildings will apply their bonuses to every city within six tiles. <laughs> yeah, implementing something like that while allowing for more tiles to be worked in a compressed fashion like that would require a little bit of an adjustment. Yeah. The good part about uh, doing the ICS spam, though, is that you get all the district bonuses because all the cities will plop like an industrial zone next to another two industrial zones and get all the bonuses for adjacency that way. Yeah. In the thread, Leran kind of interjects something about the front-loading that really doesn't take off in the thread. It's about governors. Governors should come because your empire is growing too unwieldy to keep you together on your own, which should happen in the medieval or renaissance era, not ancient era. Refine the loyalty system to have loyalty depend on distance to capital in addition to nearby cities, then let governors radiate loyalty in the same way but weaker. So if I were to settle the East Coast from Europe on the Earth map, if I'd put a governor in New York, then, say, Washington would also gain some loyalty from that. Hmm. That's going to be tough to scale into the late game. I'm just thinking about that numerically and such. But having a governor cap total makes that kind of tough if we want to go and start going uh, wide much more often. Sort of, but you don't have four to six fronts, typically. Uh, You usually only have, like, one to three, right? No matter how low your loyalty pressure is, if there's literally nobody else applying pressure to the city anymore, you probably don't need to worry about it. Part of the issue with the loyalty becomes, I mean, yes, settling cities closer to other civilizations, which is good that the loyalty kind of forces a bit of a buffer, because, oh gosh, that city's only been there 10 or 15 turns, but if I settle there... That particular hex is already minus six. How am I going to be able to combat that, particularly in the early game, let alone the additional loyalty pressure that it's going to apply? Because as soon as I found that thing, before I construct anything in there, put any kind of units in there, adopt any kind of policy card, it's already going to be losing loyalty. But at the same time, when you start taking cities, you have a completely viable city. Yet you realize uh, loyalty is falling and you go and you have to look at the city details. I always do not immediately talk about raising or keeping the city. You go and look at the loyalty details and it tell tell you by how much it is falling. And even in the mid game, it can be at 15 plus and you think, okay, I can combat that. Oh, and an online speed, you've got like a handful of turns. So you end up raising cities, and you try to think, you know, maybe some strategy with regards to, okay, I'm going to capture this city first because it's not as good as the second city, because if I capture this first city and I raise it, then if I go to capture the second city, then there won't be as much negative loyalty pressure on there. But that also ends up leaving more space on the map, and you raise perfectly good cities when that is not something we would have done previously in Civilization, let alone not something you would have seen in reality. Not that I'm often one for a reality argument, but in terms of gameplay, it's like, yep, Raise, raise, raise. More empty space. It's actually making the problem worse. Yeah, that's very true. So what can we talk about next? How about some legacy policy cards? That sounds great. 
we have Regeneration 64. What do people think of the government legacy policy cards? Uh, any differences noticed since the spring patch? Anyone use, utilize any particular strategies for them or just not bother with them? The legacy policy cards, I feel, end up in weird spots because I always find myself taking only a couple of them. And mostly because I like the government a lot more than I like anything else that the policy card does. I haven't yet chosen a government for the legacy policy, but it's a nice touch for some of them. The first one uh, that was mentioned, Barbarian Hunter mentioned uh, Classical Republic Legacy card. That's probably my favorite one, mostly because Classical Republic is my number one pick whenever I get to uh, real governments. And then the fact that I get a bonus to housing and amenities early on is really strong. Yeah, so you end up looking at, <laughs> if you adopt any legacy policy card, you end up adopting that because it's tied to the government that you normally choose. So again, like you're saying, it's completely incidental. You didn't choose to go Classical Republic because you will be able to get that card once you finish a government building, you know, of a given tier in order of the legacy for it to become available. Which is, I mean, it's still better than just, hey, I've been in a Classical Republic for 15, 20 turns, and so therefore I'm getting this kind of legacy bonus to go along with it, if for no other reason that it makes it more of a choice. I think a lot of people were getting these legacy bonuses and not even realizing it because you just got it by choosing the government and staying with the government. So at least it's a choice now, but I'm not really certain how meaningful it is, other than in maybe some edge cases. The problem that I always have with them is that there's always something else that I'd rather put in that wildcard policy slot. So I end up rarely ever using my government legacy cards. It's like I have better things to do with that extra slot half the time. Yeah. When I start near nobody, I can see what you guys are saying, but it's hard to pass up plus eight from oligarchy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the That's a lot here. of combat strength. And that's before Great General. The advantage conferred by this is nearly an era when you stack these modifiers. So uh, first off, we mentioned Classical Republic. Uh, NER did. That's all cities with a district receive plus one housing and plus one amenity. The oligarchy uh, policy card that you can run is all land melee, anti-cavalry, and naval melee class units gain plus four combat strength, and you're already getting plus four combat strength from being an oligarchy itself, hence the plus eight, not counting the great general that Phil also mentioned. Yeah, if, if I'm fighting early in the game, then yeah, oligarchy is pretty much a no-brainer decision. So maybe if there were like specific government legacy slots where it wasn't taking up a wild card slot maybe i'd yeah. be more compelled to use them it's but at, at that yeah at that point i feel like it's not a choice you might as well go back to it just being an automatic part of the government yeah. like especially if you yeah. just are running the same government for a long period of time and you literally only have the one card unlocked there's just no decision to make at that point so moving these into policies was just a decision in rise and fall that just kind of confused me i was like okay i guess but i, I kind of preferred the way that the legacy bonuses used to work and I think also this has not gotten anywhere near as much attention as it otherwise would have because it was a change to an existing mechanic, but there were other things to pay attention to with regards to policy cards. Like, oh, I don't know, tying into the Aegis system and the Dark Age policies, which if we're talking about combat, there is that one what, Twilight Valor that gives you plus five combat strength, except A, you can only have that when you're in a Dark Age, and B, it comes with the penalty of your units cannot heal outside of your own territory. So with this one, you don't have that limitation. 
And I think sometimes, and even myself, I think, oh yeah, there is this option. I just have to remember to go in and finish constructing that government building. Like, okay, government plaza. Okay, great, done. I've got that, because now I've got the adjacency bonuses for all my districts that are nearby. Great. This helps prioritize. I'm going to put my commercial hub, my initial campus, and my capital, for example, or my second city. Fantastic. And then... Also, if you're going on the rampage and you're starting near people, then yeah, go ahead and construct Warlord's Throne. It gives you the 20% production in all cities when you capture a city. Plus it also, once you construct that, gives you another governor title. And then it go ahead and unlocks that legacy policy card. So as long as you're thinking about lining these up and remember to take the steps to do that, then I would say, yeah, that that one, the one for oligarchy, is particularly powerful. And even if you aren't near a formal sieve, if you have uh, some barbarian problems and they've gotten to be particularly problematic, even having that on a temporary basis, because just like any policy card, you can swap it out at any time and pay gold or wait until you get the next one and you change it for free. Sometimes that can give you that little extra competitive advantage that you need without having the negative that could come with a more or less equivalent from a Dark Age policy card. Although you could also run that too if you were in a dark age and then really potentially go to town. I mean, all of these are good situationally. All of them. Uh, that includes Classical Republic. That, that really depends on what you're doing with the additional pop from the amenity and housing. And even autocracy is, can be very strong because you're stacking modifiers. If you have a good capital and you're doing this, it can give you more total yield than either of the other two, depending on how you're been able to expand to this point. Yeah. And if you're going wonders off that, you're applying all this extra production and set up towards a wonder, that can snowball too. Presumes that you're not going to get killed by somebody, but it's still potentially very strong. Yep, plus one to all yields for each government building and palace in a city. Yeah. I feel like I just need to experiment with these more and find different ways to use them. I think part of my problem too is I've got a lot of just habits with regard to how I use policies that come from vanilla Civ Six. And, and if you really uh, want, take your time and compute the actual value of each of your choices. In other words, like how much am I getting per turn from this? Or if I take over these cities using my military forces, how much am I getting out of these cities? So that's why military is so strong, by the way. You're denying your opponent this stuff, but the marginal value in additional cities is pretty high. If you just look at the raw production values, gold values, and all that that you'll get over time from that compared to your alternative investments. And then your units don't disappear either. That's why military is so strong. But if you're evaluating any of your choices, you're really looking at how, how your yields are improving over time and what gets you to your goals the fastest. And you would pick based on that. So a little bit of math here goes a long way if you're willing to do it. And so, charging that in multiplayer. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, you can't do it in multiplayer. So if you're playing exclusively multiplayer, you can't. And it's going to be really yeah. hard for you to ever want to experiment with anything because you are playing competitively. So... yeah. Even in our co-op games, I don't have time to sit there and necessarily crunch all the numbers to make the optimal decision. I just have to pants it, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you were playing without a turn timer and or maybe a play-by-email game, you have a little more time to do this. But at the same time, you've probably got other things you want to do. And then you have to decide, so how long it's going to take me to figure this out? Would I just be better to continue to play the game and be less frustrated, etc., etc.? I mentioned all of the Tier 1 Legacy Policy cards. In terms of your other government types, just uh, going alphabetically here, because why the heck not? Communists, plus 0.6 production per citizen in cities with a governor. Democratic, plus one production, plus one housing per district. Fascist, all units gain plus five combat strength. War weariness reduced by 15%. 
Mercantile, so for Merchant Republic, plus 10% gold in all cities with an established governor. Monarchy, plus one housing per level of walls. And Theocratic, plus five religious strength in theological combat and plus 0.5 faith per citizen in cities with a governor. My mind, as I'm going through the list, instantly goes towards fascist. I know because I'm a warmongering bastard, but also because all units gain plus five combat strength. And I'm like, mm, yeah, in a situation where you're fighting, you know, tech parity, tech parity, comparable level promotions or not, maybe war weariness reduced by 15%. Oh, actually, that's pretty good. I would rather not have one of my more of my cities become unhappy and start spawning some of these rebels that can become very, very disruptive and start pillaging my yields, etc., etc., even though they're terrible at attacking cities, but still. Tech parity versus the AI is a joke, though, because the AI does not consistently make armies well and position them well, and then you have the scaling factor of experienced units, so you're getting quite a lot of combat bonuses from that. The AI also doesn't run fascism consistently, so you're often somewhere between plus 15 and plus 25 strength on contemporary units. But if you involve armies, I've had situations in the endgame where I'm attacking the same unit type with the same unit type, like infantry and infantry and one-shotting. I've also noticed that if I am doing a lot of conquering late game, that typically the wall that I run into is loyalty pressure in the conquered cities and not necessarily war wariness. So Yeah, yeah you, you'll want to take a few cities at once there. But with air and artillery, with four to five range, depending on if you have normal or rocket already, it's pretty easy to lock down a city and then run by it and take like three cities at once if you want. I think it's also worth mentioning when it comes to being in a fascist government. You don't necessarily have to be a warmonger. If you're the warmonger-y, you may very well appreciate also having additional combat strength and reduction in war weariness while you, I don't know, try to fend them off and finish all your spaceship parts. (laughs) I know we joked maybe half seriously uh, <laughs> about the change to monarchy, but the plus one housing per level of walls, that was changed as a legacy bonus when it was just inherent to monarchy. And I believe we joked that, hey, there might actually be a reason to adopt monarchy now. I mean, the plus one housing per level of walls, admittedly applying to all of your cities, I don't know, at some point you may say that's great. But I've got an amenity issue in order to support that population. Or you might even say, at this particular point in time, when I've got neighborhoods that are going to be coming around where I can get plus three, four, five, six. I mean, it's okay, but it doesn't have me jumping up and down saying that I'm going to choose that as a policy card choice as compared to something else. Well, the bigger issue I would say is, did you even bother to build the extra levels of the walls past the ancient just to get that bombardment? in your city because if you're doing well your cities generally shouldn't be threatened so there's no reason to build walls let alone to ever upgrade them so unless i'm like playing as georgia or something like that where i've got that unique renaissance wall without walls doing more when your cities aren't being attacked there's just not much reason to build them and if you haven't built them then there's absolutely no reason to ever adopt this chop overflow yeah, I mean, you can build walls really quickly with the limes policy and, and chop overflow and just have them if you want them. But like I said, I rarely ever feel like I need the walls. So Yeah, no, it's weird, though, because this was something that was being done, especially pre-Magnus nerf, by like high-end players who are racing for fastest finish times. <laughs> they, they would utilize monarchy in this capacity just for the overflow because it was so strong. Not because the walls are valuable, mind you, but... <laughs> <laughs> I've got the city stuffed in the middle of my empire that I'm likely that anybody's going to get to us now, but let's just build the biggest, most elaborate wall. 
we'll make the forest pay for it. Yeah, I mean, if walls did more, if walls just generated passive culture or like some loyalty points or something like that, so that it's actually doing something, then I'd be much more tempted to build them in a lot more of my cities. But right now, unless I've got barbarians or enemies at my city's gates, I just don't need the walls. I think walls are in a decent place right now. And it's just that the opponents are not in a decent place. Right, yeah. Personally. Right, that would definitely make a big difference. Speaking perhaps of plus one housing for things that you would construct anyway, Democratic, plus one housing per district and plus one production, also per district. It's not terrible. Plus one production would be more meaningful, I think, if democracy came a little earlier. (laughs) But I'm not suggesting that. Maybe we would find it more enticing if it was a percentage-based production boost for that. Yeah, because it's so late in the game when democracy shows up, and that's just like this tiny boost. At the beginning of the game, that boost would be a lot, but by that time in the game, eh? It's interesting that they nerfed democracy and buffed the other two governments recently. I'm a a pure warmonger, so I always just ran fascism, but yeah, I think they probably noticed that democracy was being run constantly otherwise. Yeah, exactly. The two of the last three here are only for cities with a governor in it. One communism plus 0.6 production per citizen. Well, that has the potential if you have really high pop cities, and you probably have a governor in there. Yeah, if you're going 15 to 20 pop with eight cities, you're getting a lot of value out of that. Each 10 pop would be six per city with a governor. But if you're getting the 20 pop, which is feasible by the end game, if you're actually bothering with this approach, then uh, that's quite a lot. Yeah, add on it has some additional scaling with... Uh miscellaneous uh, percentage bonuses like rare valley yeah ends up being pretty strong yeah i could see if you need the production that this would be better if you're uh, not too large as for mercantile plus 10 gold in all cities with an established governor it was a nice boost when it was just part and parcel with adopting a merchant republic except now even with the change with the policy cards why would i run that when i could run free market so therefore if my city has a population of 10 or higher, it's plus 50%, and it can be plus 50% again if a district has at least plus four adjacency bonuses. So even if I only get one of those things, that's plus 50% instead of plus 10%, and I don't even have to have an established governor in there, although I probably would anyway. Dan, are you saying you're never going to run Merchant Republic again? No, I'm saying I probably would not run this legacy policy card that would be generated by Merchant Republic. Right, it's like a second or third card that you would run to buff out your economy rather than being the number one thing you would want to put in that wild card slot and then last but not least and it's uh, it's only last because alphabetically it's last we we assure you for theocracy again that plus five religious strength and theological combat and 0.5 faith per citizen in cities with a governor it has some viability for those games where people like build their game around faith and you can generate a lot of faith in civ six so if you're going the faith path and buying important infrastructure or units with faith, this can make sense. I don't have much respect for theological combat, sorry. But it's another one of those almost kind of non-choice ones similar to oligarchy, where if you're going the military route, you want oligarchy. If you're going the religious route, you want theocracy. Yeah. Any time that you can just declare and kill all the religious units, I don't know, man. (laughs) Yeah, there's that too. Next patch, to fall when and its priorities, a thread started by Haig. Cheers, wise sages. 
when do you predict we will get a summer patch if you look at previous patching schedules? Also, what do you expect the patch priorities to include? I hope only for two things. Better AI unit uh, using by the artificial intelligence and the AI building way more. I have to kind of yell because it's an all cap. Way more naval units. <laughs> well, as for when, if it's a summer patch, I would hope it would come out in the summer. Yeah. It's a pretty wide <laughs> area. Of yeah, well, true. Release, but fine, I'm going to say it. Which summer? Which part of the uh, world are we talking about here? Is this the Northern Hemisphere or the Southern Hemisphere, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why be so regionist? Australian summer quarter. all over. <laughs> oh uh, that was the requisite troll comment. I'm sure Phil approves. Now we can talk about the real stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I thought they called it pothole repair season. You're around where I live. I would love it. It's Civ or otherwise, a game just calls their patch pothole repair. I, I you know, just <laughs> just have fun with it, man. Oh, that would be the one where they fix the UI, except for that it's more of a sinkhole. But or like I mean, what happened near me, screw the potholes, we'll just pave the whole row with tarmac. <laughs> to be fair, a sinkhole is just a giant pothole, so you know they yeah. fix the UI, call it pothole repair season patch, and fill us happy again. Understatement, though. Sinkholes, potholes, the next generation. Uh, traveling Canuck. <laughs> <laughs> said, if we do get a patch, I'd be happy to see both of the items that were already mentioned. It's impossible to know what the development team's priorities are. Oh, well, let's not try to delve into the mind of anybody, let alone the developer. But I'm not going to read every single item on Traveling Canucks list, but the first one, air power fixes. Primarily, they're used by the AI, but also issues related to their deployment on carriers and a bunch of related stuff. AI victory efficiency on higher levels, so that beating the AI to a victory is more challenging at higher levels. And city-state protection mechanism that applies equally to human and AI players. Can't declare war on a city-state without declaring war on its sovereign, too. Production cost is generally adjusted so that the building modern military units up to a specified infrastructure capacity is significantly cheaper. Mm, so that's trying to address the whole why spend seven, eight, nine turns constructing this unit when I can just buy it right now. Yeah, I think that's more of a problem with uh, the hammer gold scaling. Gold just snowballs really hard, and you can use it to buy more stuff that will buy you gold. And then eventually you turn all that pile of gold into piles of units, anything else. If production is made cheaper, then more focused by the AI on building naval units. I'm concerned that more naval units otherwise would just slow the AI down, and I can't borrow from its land units because those aren't strong enough to defend itself as things stand. Mm. I mean, okay, sure, some of it is... When we talk about the focus, yeah, more is not necessarily better. It's just how they go ahead and use those units or not use those units. I'm currently bombarding this unit of yours to death. It will take three turns. You let it sit there and do nothing to stop me from doing... Okay. More buildings with effects that give bonuses to intact resources to make the decision to retrain versus chop more interesting, although this is likely out of scope for a patch. Okay, so by constructing this building, if you construct this building, say, in your government plaza or even just in more general your city center, then you get plus two production for every uh, forest hex that you have in work. I think you should just make a tech buff these deals over time. And make it soonish, because right now chopping is overwhelmingly dominant. So, like, pushing someone to invest to have the yield maybe be competitive with a chop at some point in the future, considering the discounted value of COGS now, it's too much. The alternative would be, of course, to nerf chops. Just make them weaker. I think you could also do both. Honestly, I was really I would start with one or the other and then, like, start tweaking the other one after that. If you do both at once, <laughs> there's a long history in games of overdoing a change. Yeah. Nerfing the chop is probably the more straightforward of the two. Yeah. I did want to see buildings coming back. 
Stoneworks was one of my favorite buildings early on in Civ Five, for example, just because it gave me a real reason to hope to see a whole lot of stone near my cities, just because that hammer boost was really big. Yeah. And to keep that stone on the map instead of harvesting it. The happiness yeah. from the uh, Stoneworks was also pretty nice early in the game. Yeah, they could do some stuff with that. And they could also um, build that into district adjacency to an extent as well. And that'd be nice, especially as an alternative to just going chop all the time. They already sort of do because, uh, for example, industrial zones get a bonus for being next to mines. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, you could really flesh this out significantly using the idea you just mentioned with uh, special features or having more adjacencies to be potentially available. Yeah, yeah, more maybe. to consider when placing cities then. And you might actually place your cities differently on the same terrain depending on what yield you prioritize. I was always kind of surprised that industrial hubs didn't get a yield adjacency bonus for being next to lumber mills. Yeah. That could incentivize you to keep those forests intact if you're going to build a, a industrial hub next to them. Lumber mills are actually pretty good tiles. In fact, if they're next to the river, they're excellent tiles. Oh, yeah. I'd, so I'd like, if you nerf chops, you would probably course. see them. I mean, certainly there are times, particularly depending upon the civilization you're playing. Hello, Brazil. <laughs> hey, if you uh, place this campus here behind, beside this rainforest, you're going to get plus one. Well, that might be nice for a little while, but that's not going to keep the rainforest around forever. Because at some point, I'll have multiple cities and policy cards stacking. The, the plus one difference is going to be negligible. That's just going to delay the inevitable. And in fact, I might decide, mm, even so, maybe I'm just better go ahead and chopping it now, because that plus one equivalent in science, for example, I'm going to more than make up for it and what it is that I want to do by saving a dozen turns or more on constructing this other building or this unit or whatever. Although you do get stronger chops by delaying them technology-wise. So if you have something that you need to build in the future and it's not unlocked in tech yet, it can make sense to store trees because it's essentially storing production. Ah, yes, the old spaceship parts from wood, yes. (laughs) (laughs) we chopped down all the sequoia trees in california to make the spaceship part it's like a long-running joke now because that was originally done by a civ 4 player who was playing on settler to chop out space parts and here we are in civ 6 and we're still chopping out late games with forests oh well you can (laughs) so hey i want to rush production on my mechanized infantry here let's chop down a forest (laughs) new feature let us chop mountains oh wouldn't even surprise me at this point. Something, something, terraforming, Civ 2, something, something. Uh, traveling Canuck. <laughs> Former city-states going back to city-state status rather than free city when they lose loyalty. And other cities that go free city gaining a generic city-state status if they stay free city for more than, say, 20 turns. We've talked about this. I don't know what generic city-state status means, but we know that the number of city-states that's set at the start of the game, the code-wise, adding them in the middle of the game, even if one's been eliminated, that's not going to be possible. But former city-states going back to the city-state status rather than free city when they lose loyalty. At the very least, don't make them basically barbarians where they're hostile to everybody. Have like a faction where they're considered a free city, but they're not automatically hostile. I think what he means by generic uh, city-state would be like, you know how every production city-state has the same stuff for one, two, and three people sent there? You would just have that for each of the deal types without any special bonuses. Just make one. I don't know that that's the way to go, but I think that's what he's saying. Yeah, so maybe you could like assign a city its type based on what districts it has or something like that. So if it's got an industrial hub, it becomes a 
Well, yeah, I mean, if I would actually prefer that it be themed in some way, but yeah, yeah, that's true. So if it's got an industrial hub, it becomes an industrial city state. If it's got a theater square, it becomes a cultured city state, etc. Picked randomly from district present. How about that? So if it only has one district, that's the type it is. <laughs> if it has an entertainment complex, it becomes Las Vegas. What? Uh... Hey. <laughs> or Amsterdam, depending upon the entertainment being offered, you know what I'm saying? That's yeah. yeah. That kind, huh? <laughs> make one every game, Ben. That's Dan's new challenge. He used to make Vegas or Amsterdam every game. Why not both? Uh... <laughs> well, both is a bonus. You have to make one or the other. And you, you still sort of fail unless you make both. And if they're beside each other, you get other bonuses and dot, dot, dot. Um, sometimes those city-states are pretty clustered together. It, it is possible. And AI bonus rebalancing so that the AI's higher-level bonuses are more evenly distributed over the full course of the game rather than being mostly, wait for it, front-loaded. That's one of my big issues with the game as well is the front-loading of difficulty on the uh, higher difficulty settings. This comes back to the AI needing to try more. Well, there's other ways to do it, too. You know, like, for example, I think Stellaris has a thing where the bonuses that the AIs get actually increases over the course of the game. I don't know if that's necessarily a good solution for Civ, but... Civ you know, 4 has that. An alternative. It's yeah. been done. The main yeah. problem is that the AI just isn't competitive in yeah. Civ 6 over time, so that the right. only time it's actually threatening is when it warrior rushes you. Can tweak little AI behaviors and patches, but if we're talking about like total overhaul of how the AI works and how the AI thinks and how the AI plays the game, that's probably outside the scope for a patch. I think you're probably right, but I'm not sure that I agree that it should be. But in terms of what it is, yes, probably. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, AI should be a top priority that we should be getting significant AI improvements like almost every patch, I think. But, you know, there's a unless AI... it's already good. But when is that ever well, yeah, true in strategy? Admittedly, AI is hard. Very and that's why so many games rely on, oh, well, we'll just give the AI a bunch of bonuses and free stuff to offset the fact that AI is hard. But Civ has long made a, a scenario where it's impossible to make a good AI because the game mechanics themselves are not effective yet. Yeah. And that, you know, this manifests all the time in PvP. Like, how much of the game's content actually gets used when every single person playing is trying to win and is a human player playing against each other? And the answer is a lot of the game's systems don't see use at all or see so use so rarely that they might as well not be in the game in terms right. of competitive multiplayer. And to me, Jim- that's an indictment on the series' design, not on the AI. And the fact that the AI doesn't use it, it reflects that the developers are trying to make the AI's cover up these inadequacies because most people don't play multiplayer but the fact of the matter is these systems are broken and they are broken in single player too they just made the ai not utilize them which is why the ai seems so terrible it's not the only reason why but it's a significant reason why and you can't fix it without fixing the systems there's nothing you can do with the ai that will make a broken system work you need to fix the system The thread started by uh, Anandas. I think that's how you say it. Man, I've been designated the uh, introducer for this because I've actually participated in the thread. But uh, to this day, I do not have a 100% understanding of exactly what this software does. But off we go. He linked a Reddit thread talking about the Red Shell uh, spyware, as he calls it. I think that might be a fair designation. We'll see. Where Civilization 6 and a lot of other commonly played Steam games are using something that's... uh, 
tracking API key, Steam ID, operating system, screen resolution, installed fonts, browsers. What else exactly? It's not clear to me. You can tell like if you're clicking on an ad from the game or something, I guess. But yeah, there's a DLL with Red Shell that's tracking some stuff. And the source of controversy in this thread is that this is uh, something that's on your machine automatically. It's doing this and you can opt out of it, but you have to explicitly go out of your way to opt out of it. So it wasn't uh, something that you're being asked to do uh, or anything. It's just done when you install these games. Aren't there laws against this sort of thing in like the EU? Uh, One was passed recently, but it's not clear if it's a violation. That also has a lot to do with the changes to how they represent their privacy statements. Before, it used to be a giant mess of everyone saying, "Uh, we do some stuff with some data and no one really knows. We're not going to tell you. Europe's uh, GDRP went and forced people to have a much more standard, here's what we're doing with your data, here's how we're storing it, etc. The only thing I know about Red Shell, to be perfectly honest with you, is that I went and uh, deleted the DLL and CIF6 does not start with the deleted DLL. Yeah, the reference to the uh, GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation in the, uh, in the European Union, as was mentioned in terms of uh, with regards to privacy and whatnot. And the, the thread, besides questions of whether or not it's spyware... I wouldn't say a proponent, proponent might be a strong word, but a defender of not necessarily Red Shell itself, but defender of at least the nature of the criticism of Red Shell here and Civilization VI and others is, well, you agreed to this when you installed the game. And whether you read the fine print or not, well, that's up to you. And if you still don't like it, there is apparently an opt-out option that is included with the uh, software and then it was linked to also within the thread and you can request that it be removed but it's kind of at that point that i think even if you do get confirmation that you have been removed and someone said that they've received that confirmation you're having to trust that they've said that they've removed you if you're really concerned that they're not going to remove you whether or not you get that or not given the fact that as kind of what you've said ner and i've seen other people as well say that you can't play civilization 6 without it and possibly other games then the choice then being not playing civ 6 at all question mark which if there was enough of a backlash to this then maybe 2k and foraxis would re-examine either whether or not this is included or just being a little more upfront and transparent i realize there's all the fine print and whatnot but even just a, a reference that, hey, we're going to be going and installing this at the uh, at the same time, and if you want to read uh, more about it, then go here. So my concern with that is when you say that it's being installed at the same time, when you can't run Civ 6 without it, it's not being co-installed like random toolbars are with some of the sketchy downloads. But even and those usually give you an opt-in, opt-out, like when you're at the point of install. This yeah. is you opt in or you don't use Civ, and that's really putting people who are fans of the series in a tough spot. Now my choices are support a series or don't spend money on a series I want to see keep going because they keep doing bad things that I don't know what Red Shell does other than it's being labeled as spyware, and that's not terribly comfortable for me. I mean, the opening poster is calling it spyware. Does it cross that line? Probably, uh, in my mind, but others no, might disagree. Have- by a very strict definition, I guess it is a piece of software that was installed on your computer to monitor your activities and you didn't know about it in advance. So, yeah, that's I true. mean, if you're going to use that sort of definition, then yeah. Like, is it malicious? If that's part of your definition for spyware, then that's iffy. It depends on what the data is being used for and what data it's tracking. 
I think um, the way this is installed is kind of malicious. I mean, yeah, you could read the fine print and find this, and ultimately somebody did. But the amount of time before this became a really noticed thing means that, yeah, this was put on in a way that most people wouldn't see it. And that's very intentional. Yeah. It's shady even if there's nothing harmful on it. This kind of practice is the kind of thing where you start to off-distrusting them because they have behaved in an overtly untrustworthy fashion from the beginning. Right. And even that, just anytime you're installing any third-party software, you're opening up additional risks. Because what if this Red Shell company, what if they get hacked, right? Any data that they'd collected is now possessed by the hackers. So that's in addition to any data that Steam might have been tracking or any data that Firaxis might have been tracking, you know, and so on. It's just one more possible point of failure. So depending on how sensitive the data is, that's an issue. And I could understand somebody not wanting that being on their computer if they are worried about things like that because companies are getting hacked all the time. It's one thing like, for example, and I'm sure a lot of our listening audience is, is aware of TeamSpeak. And there is this, uh, oh, what's that add-on I'm trying to call here on TeamSpeak? For watch, at the same time as installing TeamSpeak, there will be a separate kind of, hey, do you want to go ahead and install this? You're prompted at install. And it's you're, you're told this, you're given the option, you can go research it if you want before you say yes or no. The fact that this was not communicated in a meaningful way that it was just buried in the you know the end user license agreement lots lots of other things are and i get the argument from hey well yeah you agreed to it except that i'm also agreeing to install the game on my computer and that was very clear that i was installing the game you didn't really make it clear that this was coming along with it so when you say this is what you're tracking is that really what it is that you're tracking right are you tracking more? Are you tracking less? Like you said, what have you used with that data? And the fact that we can opt out of it afterwards on top of it being hidden, you just kind of threw this in there. If this is really on the up and up, why not make that clear up front and then try to make the argument and install why it would actually be beneficial to me, the end user, for me to have this software installed? It, I can't help but make a comparison to certain, and I'm not going to make any specific references, but in democracies, certain governments passing legislation that's labeled, this is what this is all about, yet in this really huge piece of legislation that has hundreds of clauses, you sneak in something else that has absolutely nothing to do with it, and nobody paid any attention. It's like, oh, sorry, uh, but you agreed to it. Well, and to that point, I think I also remember hearing a couple of years ago about a court decision saying that EULAs are not actually legally binding. So there's that too. If you're going to sit there and say, oh, well, it's in the EULA, so you agreed to it. Well, if that EULA isn't actually a legally binding agreement, then no, I didn't really agree to it. Yeah, EULAs are considered contracts of attachment, sort of like your uh, terms of use for your ISP or you know your electric company or whatever. And they are binding to a certain extent, but they can't just be like, uh, and you will also give us your firstborn son for a ritual sacrifice at our altars of evil or anything. Yeah, and I don't know if installing other software beyond what you're asking to install is something that a EULA can tell you you have to do. Like, I don't remember where the cutoff line for this particular ruling was with regard to things like that. Depends on uh, also who made it, but we're getting a little bit off topic with that, I think. Yeah, the point is they should tell you up front, even if they have to give you a little checkbox and say, do you want to continue? And saying no means you don't get to install the game. At least you know that this is being installed. Yeah, Steam is pretty good about popping up uh, on their uh, store page. Requires a opt-in to third-party DRM or a third-party EULA or something. And just informing the user of what you're putting on their computer is just, I would say, good business practice, right? If this was done in good faith, then Firaxis and 2K 
and Steam or whoever else is doing it should have no compunctions about telling you that that's what's happening. Yeah, I I'm assuming that it is in good faith, just because I don't think that anyone is going out there and saying, you know what we need to do? We need to go and spy on all of our customers. But it's also one of those ones where I don't know, and that's not really comfortable either. Not knowing about stuff like that is kind of terrible. And on Steam, it says requires uh, agreement to third-party EULA, which is actually kind of meaningless because every game has a third-party EULA. So not really upfront about that at all. When I installed Civ 4 the first time, that game even prompted you whether or not you wanted to install the multiplayer client. Oh, the GameSpy, yeah. Which was an application that actually let you play a feature of the game, right? And they let you opt out of that at install. Well, you could still direct IP without GameSpy client. Well, yeah, true. But yeah, that was a very nice gesture and a pretty sound contrast from this. My gosh. Now, I have no idea if Civ 4 was also installing anything like Red Shell, but probably not because that was long before the time where these sorts of things were popular. But yeah, if you can give the user the option to opt out of a feature on which the actual game runs, then you can give them the option to opt out of something that's just performing analytics. Or even better, opt in. Yeah. That's what I meant, yeah. Oh, okay. (laughs) I mean, the difference being it starts with the checkbox checked and you have to explicitly uncheck it. Yeah, that, you know, that's what I mean by opting out as opposed to it saying, do you want to install this and you having to say yes, which would be an opt in. Yeah, being able to run Civ without it would be a big uh, step for uh, for access overall, I think, just because you delete it and you're like, I don't want to try this because Red Shell spyware and your game doesn't work. That's not terribly good design. I know there's discussion in the thread, and it gets a little bit more technical, I don't know, blocking certain ports, internet ports on your computer to prevent the data from being transmitted. And I, and I first read that, and I thought, and I don't know, would that, someone doing that, and then the game, and the game, maybe the red shell picks up on, hmm, hey, I can no longer send that information, so maybe that would work, maybe it wouldn't work, but we shouldn't have to go to those lengths to prevent this. If this was, again, all goes back to if this was on the up and up, if they really don't want us to be suspicious about it, then don't be suspicious in how it ends up on our computer in the first place. Yeah, and a user that's tech savvy enough to do something like blocking ports is not the target for most malicious spyware anyway, right? That these sorts of things thrive on the users who don't know what the heck's going on on their computer to begin with. Again, not saying that this application is actually malicious, but you shouldn't have to be that tech savvy in order to say, no, I don't want that on my machine. I mean, sure, this is about gathering data and psych. Also, you gather this data, do you turn around and sell it to other people? I wouldn't necessarily want it to go down this path, but if they wanted to go something wild like, hey, buy this game for $50, or hey, would you like a $15 discount? Then you agree to run this software that tracks this, that, and the other thing for X amount of time in perpetuity, whatever. I mean, that would be kind of odd, but again, it would still be on the up and up, or otherwise, just tell us what is the advantage. Especially if it's going to be opt-in, I could already hear people saying, well, then no one's going to want it because it's extra stuff. Well, if for somehow, I don't know how you necessarily justify it, we'll enter (laughs) IP address into a draw for free cookies every six months. I don't know, something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> free but cookies. you can't deliver free cookies internet, the internet. Cookies. <laughs> not those kind of cookies Mackie. the internet kind uh, no fun the most disappointing Real of cookies all cookies go home. if you're installing something that's doing things like bug and crash reporting that's something that most users are probably going to opt into because we want our games to perform well and not be buggy so if you have good reasons for installing this software and you inform the user what those reasons are then 
most users would probably be okay with it. Yeah, if they told us they were doing is to collect the data somehow on what we were using in the game or something like that, we'd all be fine with that. Because that tells them what things we are and using what things they might want to improve on. Like I met earlier, but everybody was using democracy and they nerfed it. But if you're collecting things like, I've been clicking on this stuff in Amazon, hey, you don't need to know that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Red Shell is not tracking what legacy policies yeah. you're enacting. <laughs> I know. I'm just saying, if it was something like that, we'd all be fine with it. But it, it, no, this is like tracking your browser data. And it's like, why do you need to know that? Uh, I can just see it now. 2K gets their report from Red Shell. Our data suggests that 29% of the players who play Rome three times or more a month like to buy concrete in bulk. Hmm. <laughs> all these polycast hits. What's he doing all this plastic for? Stain removal? What? Some stains problem. just don't yeah. come out that easy. And for some people, that's exactly what this red shell software is right now. It is a stain. If it is not a stain on the product itself, then certainly the process by which we are coming to talk about this is a stain. Support the ongoing polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. A thank you to lead patron Candice Albinus and all other supporters of the show through this measure. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44121288-7659. That's 44121288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. I wish my stomach were a bag of holding. Then I could eat all the ribs and ice cream that I want and not have to worry about gaining weight. Oh, that would be less of the stomach and more your body's absorption. Yeah, you're going to probably lose thermodynamics that way. If you could control your physical processes, you could just eat stuff and not absorb it, and then you wouldn't get fat. But Then you'd also be hungry all the time. You would have to make it so that like you only absorb the good stuff, and you choose it in real time. It would be like impossible with our cognitive ability. But that would be the way to go, because that's how you would avoid getting fat. I'm sorry, what's this podcast about again? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently physics. (laughs) No, I know the answer to the question. It is rib-flavored ice cream. That is the topic of this show. Don't. And that is the theme. Thank you, Jason. (laughs) Big Bears fan. Be clear. I will deliver unto you this special sauce. <laughs> Have one or the other. Do not mix them. Oh my god! <laughs> Put a little bit of that high school cheese sauce crap on it too. Yeah. Oh, just put it in a blender. It'd be fine. Thank you for joining us for Polycast episode number three hundred and ten. I'm New with Relic, and this week I was joined by Dan Q. I will loan you part of my bag of flour in exchange. for for batches of cookies, number to be determined at a later time. I was joined by Makalua. You need to check your flour to cookie ratio there, agree to something, because sometimes accidents happen as in I eat the cookie dough. Also joined by the mean team. The gifts I give your sieves are the warmest gifts. Clear warm. And Mega Bears fan. Mmm, rib shake. <laughs> Just have a protein shake. 
seriously. Eat the ribs or have a protein shake. I'm pretty sure ribs are protein, Mackie. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah just yeah, toss them in a blender. You... <laughs> <laughs> that is a, a horrible way to treat good ribs. I'm just a saying. Cheese, a little bit of uh, pepper. <laughs> what else can make this even better? Shaky cheese. Oh, yeah. We can put avocados in it, too. Yeah. And I like that because the avocado makes it healthy. Because as we all know, av- avocado is a superfood. And if you put it in anything, it instantly makes that thing healthy. Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget to add in kale. Of course. And the newest superfood. Are we on insects still this week or have we moved on to algae? We would just put both in. I mean, this is the ultimate drink after all. Record date? June 16th, 2018. Civilization 4, 5, and Beyond Earth Sound Clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.